The subject today is don't judge. And that's a very popular thing to say, but a very misunderstood thing. But the basis for it is the text that we have here in in, uh, Matthew chapter 7. Before I read it, may I just remind you that chapter and verse divisions are not inspired in the Bible, with a few exceptions, like in the book of Psalms, the Psalms were written as Psalms, okay, so the chapter divisions and most of the verse divisions are certainly the way they were from the beginning in the original manuscripts. But though chapter and verse divisions are not inspired, they are certainly most helpful. Um, I've only seen one person who could go to the Hebrew Scriptures that did not have chapter and verse divisions and find Isaiah 53 right away. That was our guide over in Israel who understood Hebrew. And he saw it on a scroll, a cylinder scroll, and I said, can you find Isaiah 53? And within seconds he did. The rest of us would have a hard time. We need chapter and verse divisions. And so a new division is opened up here with chapter 7. It's a new section of Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount. I've chosen to call this uh, new section the disciple and unbelievers. And as we get into it today and in subsequent weeks, I think you'll see why. There's a connection here. Before I even read the read it, I hope it'll build more interest by my saying what I'm about to say. There's a connection here in the broad scheme of the ser- sermon, what we're about to talk about today, contrary to what some Christians might think, I hope you don't, but some Christians might, the Sermon on the Mount is not like the book of Proverbs. It's not filled with uh, mostly unrelated maxims. They're all inspired, all important, but they're pretty much unrelated, except for some short passages that are connected with each other. I remember as a teenager on vacation, I tried to start memorizing the book of Proverbs. I got to the 10th chapter and gave up because all the verses are unrelated. It's so hard to connect them. It's so hard the transitions. So I've memorized some since then, but I haven't memorized them all in order. But here in the Sermon on the Mount with chapter 7, it fits with what Jesus has said before. Let me show you how it fits. It's all one, it's all a unity. It's one piece. We began in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. Someone has said the Beatitudes are attitudes that ought to be in the life of the believer. Well, I would go a step further and say that they're attitudes that are present in the life of every true believer. Every true believer in some way manifests that poverty of spirit. Every believer mourns over his sin. Every believer is meek and merciful and pure and peaceable. So chapter 5 begins with a description of the Christian, his or her character. And then it goes on in the rest of the chapter to talk about the function of the believer in the setting of the earth. God has left us here. This is our habitat for this life. And we are to be salt and light. We we hear that a lot. That's true. We're to be salt and light. And then Jesus gives particular instructions with regard to life in this world, as we get to chapter 6, starting with our relationship to the law, the law of God, the law of Moses, and our relationship to the Father. He's the one who sees in secret. 
but He will reward us openly, publicly. And then in the section we just concluded with last Sunday, Jesus warns us of the dangers of worldliness, of living for the things of this life, whether it be that we have too little or too much. That's where worry comes in. If it were not for material things, we wouldn't worry for the most part. But now in this final section, the Master returns to and enforces an earlier point, and that is this, that we must consciously live under the Father's all-seeing eye. We must live consciously under the all-seeing eye of God the Father. What matters most is not what men think of us, but what God thinks of us. The fear of man is a, brings a snare, but the fear of God brings wisdom and causes men to depart from evil, the Bible says. With that in mind, let's read these first six verses of Matthew chapter 7. Judge not, Jesus said, that ye be not judged. Some people stop there. That's the only part of the chapter they know. Verse 2, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet or measure, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote or the speck that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote or the speck out of thine eye, and behold, a beam, a two-by-four, is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote or the speck out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you, or tear you. Jesus leaves no stone unturned in this message, the greatest message ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. The way I like to look at it is He just flushes out sinners from their hiding places. In chapter 6, he exposed the sin of materialism, the love of money. The love of money is the root of every evil. Not, it's not money itself, but the love of it. The love of money rather than the love of God. And in that chapter that we just concluded last week, he nails the sin of worry, which exists only because the disciple is more concerned about material things than he is spiritual things. But there's a contrast here as we get into chapter 7. I don't want you to miss it. As we get into chapter 7, Jesus is dealing with those who have gone to the opposite extreme and have become fanatical not about material things but about religious things. Ah, sin and Satan are ingenious at manifesting sin. But nobody can pop a sham on Jesus. He sees all, and He exposes all. These opening verses of Matthew 7 establish the theme for the rest of the chapter. I hope you'll be here to hear these messages, not because I'm preaching them, but because it's divine truth. And the truth of this theme that runs throughout the seventh chapter searches us to the very core of our being. 
when we, by the time we come to the last verses, those closing verses that talk about the two men who built on two different kinds of foundations and our youngest kids sing about that. It leaves us with this truth that our fate likewise is wholly determined by how we hear and respond to Jesus and His truth. And that includes what's in this chapter. What Jesus says about judgment, what Jesus says about prayer, what He says about the golden rule, what He says about exercising true spiritual discernment. This is pretty heavy stuff, class. This is not just dispensing stuff, dispensable stuff. These verses show us, as do earlier parts of the Sermon on the Mount, are you listening? The sky high demands and the spiritual nature of God's law. I mean, Jesus came out and said it in what amounts to the text verse of the whole sermon. If this is a sermon, what's the text? It's chapter 5, verse 20. Verily I say unto you, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of God. That's pretty sky high. These verses indict all of us. This teaching that I'm getting into today, as well as what has gone before, it's impossible to obey if we are left to ourselves. Are you listening? We must have the Holy Spirit, and we must have the enabling grace of God to fulfill what Jesus is saying here. When you come to the Sermon on the Mount, you're coming to the Ten Commandments on steroids. Jesus raises the bar here. And this is not just for a given era. This is not just for a given people. This is not just for the Jews of the tribulation or the kingdom. This is for me one and for you. So let's get right into the heart of the message. I don't try to be original, but you will, and there's nothing original under the sun, nothing new. But you will probably hear some things today you've never heard before. I don't apologize for that. So I hope you won't just turn me off because you think this is so familiar. I hope that you will be an obedient hearer of the word and doer of the works. Our Lord, the master teacher, issues three distinct commands in this passage, and he backs them up. I love the way Jesus does that. He backs them up with compelling reasons and illustrations and examples. The first command would be the obvious one that is suggested by verse 1. Don't judge. And what Jesus means is don't judge in the sense of condemning. Judge not that ye be not judged. As I've said before, and I'm not trying to make light of this, there are some people who, if they don't know any other verse, even John three sixteen, they do know this verse. <laughs> judge not that ye be not judged. That is quoted many, many times by people that do not know the Lord or shallow professors. You can almost put it down that if somebody says something about right or wrong or speaks out against immoral or destructive or detrimental behavior, 
in any decent-sized setting, someone is likely to speak up and say, judge not that you be not judged. And what they mean by that is they're denying that there's any absolute moral or ethical standard at all. So I ask you, is that what Jesus means? Is that why he said this, judge not that you be not judged? If it is, then he's clearly contradicting himself in the same chapter. Because look at verse 6, and we'll get to verse 6 in, a, in, in time before the end of service. Give not that which is holy unto, what? Dogs. Neither cast your pearls before, what? Swine, pigs, lest they trample them under the feet and turn again and rend you. Is Jesus talking about literal canines and pigs? No. He's referring to people. So how do I know what kind of a person is to be described as a dog or a pig? The only way I can do that is make a judgment based on someone's actions and behavior, right? Only way. So there is a kind of judgment that we must make. There is a wrong kind of judgment. In the same vein, look at verse 15. Since it's right here in the same chapter, you probably won't have to turn the page. Look at verse 15, chapter 7. Beware of what? False who? Prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. The only way I can heed that command is to make a judgment as to who false prophets are. Who are the wolves and who are the sheep? I must be on guard against people who flatter with their mouths and use Christian terminology, and they seem so harmless and relational and nice, but they're wrong. They're in error, and they're deceiving others. They're full of the devil. And Jesus said, by their fruits ye shall know them. So we're supposed to make a judgment based on their fruits. Notice he did not say, please, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to be sarcastic here. He did not say, refuse to judge them. Be tolerant of their views. <laughs> They're entitled to their views just like you are. Their religion is just as valid as yours. Don't be a bigot. That's what we hear all around us today. And some of you have swallowed it. No, we must discriminate between the true and the false. There are definite areas where men must judge, and the Bible outlines them and identifies them. In the civic realm, in the political realm, judges and magistrates, we're told in Romans 13 and other places, they are appointed of God to render judgments. The magistrates, the government rulers act for God unless they decree something that contradicts God's revealed will, and then we are to exercise what has come to be known as civil disobedience and say with the apostles in the book of Acts, we ought to obey God rather than men. But we don't jump to that conclusion lightly. So in the civic realm, in the political realm, we are to... There, there, there's judgments are to be rendered. Well, let's come closer to home in the church. I hope you know that's where you are this morning. 
at Friendship Baptist Church. In the church, the Bible clearly mandates the exercise of church discipline for those who refuse to repent after they've been entreated again and again. We don't do this as the first resort. It's the last resort. How often do you hear of a church doing that? Almost never. Is it because we've gotten so holy as churches? I wish. Church discipline is almost non-existent today. And if you do it, you run the risk of it blowing up in your face. And I've heard pastors tell me that. And that's their excuse for not doing it. They said, somebody's sure to tell me, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. And because of that, they just turn coward and they won't even do it. There's, there's the area of doctrine or teaching. We're to make judgments. We've already talked about what Jesus said concerning false prophets there in verse 15. So if we would heed that, beware of false prophets, we need to know who they are. We need to avoid them. Paul told Titus, a man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition, remember the command? Reject. Now, the popular thing today is not to do that. The popular thing is to say, ah, let people hear an alternative view and decide for themselves. That's not what Paul said. So Jesus came right out and commanded us to judge in the sense of exercising spiritual discernment and discriminating between the true and the false. Let's get that settled in our minds. Otherwise, we'll listen to stuff that sounds so good and so loving and so compassionate and so long-suffering, and we'll do otherwise. Would you turn to John chapter 7, verse 24? John chapter 7, verse 24. See what Jesus said here in the same vein. John 7, I love to hear the leaves turning. It is officially fall, so that's very appropriate, isn't it? Here it is. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge what, class? Righteous judgment. Is that a command? Yes, it's a command. Judge righteous judgment. So I say all that to say our Lord's statement right here in, in Matthew 7, verse 1, cannot be interpreted as meaning that we must never judge, that we must never evaluate someone, and that we must never act and respond accordingly. I, I hope you're straight on that. But Jesus is vitally concerned, are you listening, that we do not judge in the sense of condemning and making a final judgment on a person. By the way, that's why you and I should never use the word damn, except in a very restricted way, or just quoting someone else if you have to. We better not damn anybody. We better not ask God to damn anybody. Because Jesus did not come to damn, He came to save. But Jesus condemns condemning. Why? Why is this danger against which our Lord warns so strongly and solemnly condemned? Why is it so wicked to condemn? 
let me give you several reasons. We'll be, I need to run through these rather quickly to get on to other things, but this is important too. First of all, condemning is self-righteous. When we condemn others in the sense of rendering a, a final judgment or claiming to know their hearts, we invariably assume an air or feeling of superiority. This is being like the, the Pharisees. This was one of the preeminent traits and glaring faults of the Pharisees, and Jesus called them out for it, as well as their hypocrisy. We'll get to that in a moment. Condemning is wrong. Condemning is forbidden. Condemning is condemned because it's self-righteous. Secondly, condemning is derogatory. Recently had the privilege of sharing, and we mentioned about a a dying man that I was able to witness to for 20 minutes over the phone. And with limited time, I did not know when the doctors were going to come in that room. All I could do was take him to Luke chapter 18. I read that parable of the Pharisee and the publican and stressed what it meant to be justified apart from works simply by believing in the blood, shed blood, faith in the blood. That famous classic parable of the Pharisee and the publican is introduced by these words in Luke 18 verse 9. Luke is the one writing, and then he starts quoting Jesus. (coughs) And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's self-righteousness, right? How many would agree with that? Yeah, self-righteousness. Okay, all right. The rest of you should have your hand up. Maybe you're still processing. Uh, I'll I'll give you another chance. How many believe that those words refer to somebody who is self-righteous? They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Would you raise your hand? Good, that's much better. Thank you. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. You can put it down. If somebody is self-righteous, he or she will look down their nose at others and despise them. They'll be censorious. These are the people who find something wrong with everybody and everything. These are the people that get Limburger cheese in their mustache and the whole world smells rotten. But Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. Could not a corollary of that be, beware when you speak only evil of others? Condemning is derogatory. Thirdly, condemning tends towards hypocrisy and pride. This is probably the main reason that Jesus pronounced woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. He exposed them before others. He reserved his most scathing denunciations for the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, you connive to secretly extort and devour widows' houses, but then you cover it up by making long prayers. Oh, how God hates a hypocritical spirit. By the way, did you know there's a very close connection between being hypocritical and hypercritical? Those two are related. They're not the same. The prefix hippo means beneath or under. And the Pharisees were hypocritical because they were under the norm that God had sent, though they thought they were above it. And so they were hypercritical. Both those things are born of pride, and pride will make one blind to his or her own faults. 
In verse 5, Jesus tells us exactly how to see clearly so that we can help others in sin. As we go back to our text, thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam, the two by four, the plank out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. We must look in the mirror of God's Word, which shows us our sin, then we confess it and forsake it. We cast out, we confess our own faults, and then we'll be able to recover our brother who's caught up in a fault, as Galatians 6, 1 says, as we read a few moments ago. Condemning is self-righteous, condemning is derogatory, condemning is hypocrisy and pride, it tends toward that. Number four, condemning shows self-deception. Or I mentioned the fact we're blind. We so often speak amiss when we condemn others because we just don't have all the facts. And as a result of that, we're, we, we just have a default setting where we tend to not excuse anybody and not show mercy. Truth is, in a, in a lot of people's books, even Christians, sad to say, others are guilty till proven innocent instead of vice versa. And here's what I want to shock you with a little bit. When our hearts are not filled with mercy, when mercy is not our default setting, oh, how mean and selfish we can become. Sometimes it's just shocking. I've shared this, it's been a good while. It's a true story told by the late pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas during the Second World War. His name was George W. Truitt, great, great pastor. He tells this true story. In the time when there were passenger trains that had Pullman berths, which was for about 100 years, stories told of a train on which a well-dressed businessman was a passenger. He had just retired for the night in his berth. I think he lowered the bottom bed and then pulled the curtains He was just about asleep when all of a sudden he was awakened by the cries of a newborn baby. Baby was just crying inconsolably. The father of that baby was pacing the narrow aisle between the Pullman berths trying to console that baby but to no avail. And this businessman who had paid a good price for his Pullman berth, he had enough. He poked his head out of the pulled curtain and he said, why don't you give that baby to its mother so some of us can get some sleep? And then he said some things that no man anywhere under any provocation should say. And this was the response of the dad. Sir, I wish I could give this baby to its mother, but its mother is in the casket in the baggage car being transported back to her hometown for burial. Oh, that man felt so small. He profusely apologized. He jumped out of that Pullman berth and he said, give me that baby. With a little bit of hesitation, the man did. And then the businessman pointed to his berth and he said, now, sir, you get in that berth and get some rest. You need it worse than I. And he started pacing the floor himself, and within just a few minutes, that baby was sound asleep, as was the dad in the Pullman berth. 
That's a true story. If we only knew, folks, if we only knew what people are going through, if we only knew the truth of their circumstances, our default setting would be kindness, mercy. How restrained would we be instead of being caustic and condemning? We all need to hear that. Fifthly, condemning usurps the place of God. That's what makes it wrong more than anything. On one occasion when Jesus was rejected by a village of the Samaritans, as is told about in Luke chapter 9, his face was set as it were to go to Jerusalem, and so the Samaritans did not receive him. They didn't believe anything good could come out of Jerusalem. And James and John showed that they were really the sons of thunder here. They said to Jesus in a fit of zeal, Lord, wilt thou that we just command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias or Elijah did? I mean, hey, after all, Elijah, the esteemed prophet that he was, if he did it, it must be okay. There's a lesson in Jesus' answer for all of us. I hope we'll listen. He rebuked James and John, these great apostles. He rebuked them and he said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. Are you willing to say that about yourself? Am I willing to say that about myself? I don't know my own heart. Under the right provocation or the wrong provocation, I don't know what I'd say or do. And he said this, You know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Luke chapter 9, 56. Again, I say the final judgment of men rests solely in God's hands. And he sent Jesus to save, not to condemn. How dare we? How dare we usurp God's prerogative by condemning even the most wicked of men as far as their persons are concerned? The second question I want to ask and answer is, how does God judge? Why is it wrong to judge in the sense of condemning, but how does God judge? Well, as far as the agent by which God judges, we read in John chapter 5, verse 22, if you want to just jot that down, that reference, for the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto who? The Son, that's Jesus. All judgment. All of it. Like the fellow said, all means all, and that's all all can mean. That's right. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one from whose face one day, that final day, earth and heaven will flee away. He's not the little help harmless fuzzball of a baby we put in a manger scene, nativity scene at Christmas time. You know, there are some people who think Jesus is a soft touch compared to God, the Father. Now, the Father is just the divine deity way up there in the heavens. He's a spirit. He's aloof. He's a hard taskmaster. 
we can't relate to him. But now Jesus is a soft touch. And there are those who would go a little bit further and say, uh, if you really want to appease God, go through Mary, Jesus' mother. Because Jesus can't say no to his mother. There are people, millions of them, that believe that. That's all human supposition with not one shred of truth. Jesus will judge all men. So how does God judge through Jesus? Well, the Bible teaches three kinds of judgment, and I need to stop and make that known here. First of all, Jesus judges finally in eternity. There will be a final separation of the saved from the lost. We know that from a number of scriptures. I don't have to take you to a lot of them. The Bible says, and Paul wrote Timothy and said, The Lord knoweth them that are his. Aren't you glad that he does? He knows them that are really belonging to him. And one day, like a giant magnet, Jesus is coming again, and the true iron will be caught up to meet him in the clouds, and all the false stuff will be left behind to perish. And so we read in Matthew 25, verse 46, and these, referring to those on the king's right hand, Matthew 25, 46, these shall go away into everlasting punishment and the righteous into life eternal. No purgatory, no limbo, no place of probation, no second chance, just eternal separation from God and from the saved. Eternal separation. Death is separation. True story is told of a Christian man who was burdened for his neighbor. His neighbor happened to be a judge. So this uh, Christian neighbor, burdened for his soul, one day he uh, startled him by saying, Your Honor, I hear that you and your wife are separating. The judge was offended, indignant. He said, Wait a minute. We're happily married and have been for X number of years. Who started that vicious rumor? The Christian neighbor responded by saying, well, as far as I know, your wife is a believer in Christ, and by your own profession, you are not. And the Bible says in situations like this, one shall be taken and the other left. I'm concerned for your soul. He got his attention. And I asked you this morning, I'm sincere. Maybe not everybody here is a Christian. Can you bear the thought of eternal separation from a God who sends the rain on the just and the unjust right now? Can you bear the thought of eternal separation, not only from a God like that, but also from your loved ones, maybe your spouse, your children, your brother or sister, your mom or dad? There's going to be an eternal separation one of these days. Maybe you realize it, maybe you don't. But even unsaved people appreciate saved people. The madman, the butcher, Saddam Hussein, over in Iraq. I read his biography, I was really, really impressed. He only let Christians take care of his children. He he was a Muslim. (laughs) But he didn't trust Muslims. (laughs) 
only believers, Christians, could take care of his children. He had like 16 palaces, and I don't know how many Rolls Royces, so he had all kinds of lookalikes because people were out to kill him, and he made it as hard as possible. But he didn't want to be separated from Christians. If you're not saved, you're going to be separated from God and from Christians forever and ever. Can you bear that thought? There's no appeal of that verdict. None whatsoever. The first judgment is the final judgment in eternity. But then there's a corrective judgment in this life. And this refers to the chastening of God's children. The Lord chastens everyone that He loves, every one of His children. He doesn't spank the devil's kids, but He sure knows how to correct us, doesn't He? And every time we observe the Lord's Supper, I read those solemn words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. I'll just read verses 30 through 32 again. For this cause, for what cause? For failure to examine ourselves before we partake of the bread and the juice that we do once a month here. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, Paul said to the Corinthians, and many sleep. They've died. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord. That's not fun. We are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. I'm so glad that He has that purpose for it. Did you realize that God may well punish His own in this life with sickness or even with premature death? Please don't judge everybody who gets sick as having sinned. No, we know that's not the case. But we do know this from the Bible, that God can withhold His protection from believers and allow the devil to attack them with illness. He did that with Job. Let's not just trip lightly through life thinking we're so secure in our salvation that we are insulated from all judgment. Who are we fooling? You know, God holds His own children to a higher standard than the devil's kids. Thirdly, how does God judge? Well, He will judge believers at the judgment seat of Christ. This is to determine rewards. We've read through this doctrine before. Let me just briefly give you some verses that clearly refer to this. Romans 14, verse 10. Romans 14, verse 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Isn't it interesting that in the light of this matter of judging, judging others, condemning others, that God says, remember who your judge is. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou set it not thy brother? The word set it not in the King James means despise. Is there anybody who claims to be saved that you despise? Oh, you've got some work to do. Why? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 10 or 3, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15, Paul talks about a believer's works being tried by fire. He talks about, the, 
He says, I've laid the foundation among you there at the church of Corinth. That's the foundation of the gospel. That's the foundation of Jesus Christ. He was concerned about the Johnny-come-latelys who were so popular, uh, so flashy, uh, so charismatic that the the Corinthians were falling for them. They were coming behind him. They were building a superstructure uh, of the foundation, but the superstructure wasn't going to stand. He says, let every man take heed how he builds upon that foundation. And then he goes into a general principle. He says, one of these days, every man's work is going to be tested to see what sort, what kind it is. Will it be wood, hay, and stubble, or will it be gold, silver, and precious stones? Two categories. But then he went on to say this in verse 10. We will receive the things done in our body, whether it be good or bad. Some people will be saved, but literally as through the fire. All their works will be burned up. No rewards. Some people think that's going to be an awards day ceremony. No, it's not. It's going to be pretty solemn. Some believers are going to hang their heads in shame at the judgment seat of Christ as their rewards are devoured. They're not going to hear the well done of the master. Number two, Jesus gives reason, reasons for this prohibition against condemning. In verses three through five, he gives this apropos analogy. It's interesting here in verses 3 through 5, he doesn't even, like he does in many parables, uh, he doesn't give an interpretation here. It's so obvious the meaning, he doesn't need to. He says, why beholdest thou the mote or the speck that is in thy brother's eye, but you don't consider the beam, the plank, the two-by-four that is in your own eye? Verse 4, how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam, the plank, out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. He doesn't even explain it. It's so obvious. We can glean at least three reasons for this prohibition against judging that should be powerful incentives, or should I say disincentives for us. keep us from judging. We should not judge so that we won't provoke judgment from the Lord. That's suggested in verse 2. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet or measure, it shall be measured to you again. You know, God sometimes lets us choose our own poison. He lets us erect our own gallows like wicked Haman did when we construct them for another. Of course, God himself is the one who judges us according to our own standard. Luke chapter 12, Jesus talks about servants that are beaten with many stripes and servants that are beaten with few stripes. And he says later in the same chapter, and to whomsoever much is given shall much be required. Isn't it amazing that we set the standard, but God administers it? Let's not provoke judgment from the Lord. Let's not set the standard for our own judgment. And thirdly, because we are incapable of judgment, we shouldn't judge others. This is so important. Please don't miss it. We don't have the 
right spirit to judge. There's an irony here in verses 3 through 5. We've got a two-by-four in our own eye. How can we see clearly to remove a little speck in our brother's eye? There's sarcasm here. The Apostle Paul hints further at this in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, you know the rest of it, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. We're incapable of judging. As you've heard me say before, if we start judging someone else, we don't know when to start, we don't know when to stop. We better leave it to God. But here's the third thing, and I want to get into verse 6 before our time is up. It's 12.08, so you don't need to worry. I want to get into verse 6. Do exercise spiritual judgment and discrimination. Please look at verse 6 again. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you or tear you. Many Christians make the mistake of treating this as a separate paragraph. In fact, in my Bible, though I don't have any notes in the Bible that I preach from, it's got a paragraph there right after the number six, as if Jesus is changing the subject or it's something unrelated to what he just said. No, it's not. Verse 6 goes with the first five verses. Giving what is holy to dogs, casting pearls before swine, are all integral parts of Jesus' teaching on judging. Please make a note of that in your Bible. If you have a paragraph symbol, why don't you just cross it out or white it out? The late Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous, godly, brilliant pastor at Westminster Chapel, not the cathedral, but Westminster Chapel in London, he's right when he said in his excellent work on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, and I quote, if our Lord had finished his teaching with the first five verses, it would have undoubtedly led to a false position. Men and women would be so careful to avoid the terrible danger of judging in a wrong sense that they would have exercised no discrimination and no judgment whatsoever, end of quote. And he's exactly right. We must be able to discern people who are unable to appreciate truth. Did you know that? We must be able to discern them. For our own safety, for our own well-being, we need to. You people that know plants, you know that Virginia creeper looks a lot like poison ivy, but doesn't have the same number of leaves. So for your own safety and health, you need to be able to discriminate between the two. I don't, I don't know about you, but I do not want to touch poison ivy. My wife doesn't even want to smell it. If it gets in the air, if it gets in the smoke, it'll just do a number on her. The same is true of people. If, if we don't spot and avoid a person who is essentially is a wild boar and he turns again and rends us, we have no one to blame but ourselves. Swine don't value pearls. Unenlightened people don't esteem the kingdom tidings. Jesus sent his disciples out on short-term preaching missions a couple of times. Sent the 12 on one occasion. He sent 70 out another time. When he sent the 12 out, as it's recorded in Matthew chapter 10, he said, and I'm just paraphrasing and condensing for sake of time, he said, as you go and as you preach the gospel of the kingdom, don't wear out your welcome. 
if a house won't receive you, just shake the dust off your shoes, not on the front porch of the house, like a preacher I know did, got in trouble. Shake the dust off your shoes at the city limits as you're leaving the city. In effect, they have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. Don't wear out your welcome. Go on to somebody else. Did you know that sometimes when our message is not received, when our witness is not received, the best thing we can do is just back off and pray and get others to pray for those people? Uh, Sometimes we as Christians... Because we are not really trusting God, the Holy Spirit, and we're trusting our own powers of persuasion, we think we didn't do a good job. We need to go back and do it better. And we wear out our welcome. And we ruin our opportunities. By the way, did you know that Jesus is not only the mediator between God and man, which we, Paul tells Timothy he is, he's the only mediator between God and man, but I don't know if you've ever thought about this, he is the mediator between one man and another, between you and another man you're trying to reach. If you want to get through to another man with the gospel, you're going to have to go through the mediator. Appeal to Jesus. Admit that you have no rights over souls who are hardened and darkened, and maybe you were one of those hardened and darkened ones for a while. We need to be able to discern people who are unable to appreciate truth. Secondly, we must not intentionally put occasions in the way of people for displaying evil character. Could I honestly say I I never saw this before? God showed me this as I was studying this passage. This may be new to you too. Maybe not. Maybe you knew it. Why didn't you tell me? (laughs) We must not intentionally put occasions in the way of people for displaying evil character. Let me just borrow your common sense and, and, and sense of ethics. What good have we done if we provoke people to blaspheme by our witness? What good are we doing ourselves if we just get a persecution complex and we're inwardly pleased? like a Muslim is that's doing a suicide act when somebody acts like a dog or a pig. Don't try to bring out the worst in people. That's not your job. That's God's job. And he knows how to do it. By the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 5.20. God does it through the law, through the Ten Commandments. The law worketh wrath, the Bible says. But it's not your delivery. It's not your style. It's not the approach you make that should work wrath. It's the law. Make sure their controversy is with the word, not with the instrument. When we think of the word revival, what do we think of? I know what I think of. I think of, and I love to talk about revival and study revival and pray for revival. We think about revivals of religion. We think about revivals of holiness, revivals of righteousness. Can I share with you something maybe you've never considered before? Do you know that sin has its revivals too? Paul said in Romans chapter 7 verse 9, he was talking about himself here. I don't want to go down too deep and stay down too long and then you'll come up dry. But anyway. This is a deep thought. 
Paul said in Romans 7 verse 9, referring to himself, this is a biographical sketch, referring to himself after the Damascus Road conversion, he said this, I was alive without the law once. Do you have the foggiest what he meant? He's talking about as a believer, when he got saved on the Damascus Road, he was alive spiritually, but the law had not done its work. The rest of Romans 7 talks about that. Paul was not convicted by the law when he called on Jesus to save him and said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? In fact, he testified later before Agrippa or, 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 or Pilate, uh, uh, Felix, he said, I've lived before God in all good conscience unto this day. I've heard people say, oh, he was convicted by Stephen. Stephen was such a holy man, and he, and, you know, he held the clothes for those people that were stoning Stephen, and so he couldn't get that out of his mind, and that's what led to his conversion. Show me. Show me. He wasn't the least bit convicted by Stephen. He thought he was doing God a service to hail people and bring them back to Jerusalem and have them executed for believing in Jesus. He did get saved. Wonderfully converted on the Damascus Road. He, he repented of his sin of, of, of treating Jesus the way he'd been treated, not realizing who he was. But he still was keeping the law, I mean, circumspectly. But then the force of God's law, the spiritual force of it got to him, just like the spiritual force of, of the Sermon on the Mount, I hope we'll get, to, to, get through to us. And that's why he went on to say in that Ninth verse, but when the commandment came, when it came in spiritual force to this zealous Pharisee, this Benjamite who thought he'd been keeping the law perfectly, he said, sin revived. There was a revival of sin in, in some way in Paul. He talked about it later in the chapter. He says it was that tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, that slew him. Sin revived and I died. This is deep stuff, folks. Don't just read over that and not get it. Please don't. We need this. Sin has its revivals. And we need to not revive sin in other people. As we witness for our Savior, let's seek to disarm. Let's seek to diffuse. Let's seek to remove prejudices. Let's seek to establish goodwill. Sometimes the gospel has to be adorned with good works before it can be commended to the consciences of men. Not always, but sometimes. I know I've gone a little long, but this is so important. I hope you've learned something today. Let's examine our own hearts in the light of what Jesus said in these verses. We've been talking about not judging others, and, 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 but yet being able to discern others who don't have an appreciation for truth. Could we just turn that spotlight in on ourselves as we close this morning? Would you ask yourself this question? Am I a dog? Am I a swine that has no appreciation for God's inspired eternal truth? Do I have a real appetite and a real appreciation for it? Do I thrive when I hear it? Am I growing in truth? Or have I been saved for years, but I'm still a baby? Wouldn't it look strange if you as an adult went home today and you had for lunch, you 
a bottle of milk. And you stopped and prayed and said, Lord, thank you for this milk that I'm about to partake of. And I guess if you're on a diet or restricted because of your physical condition, maybe that would be okay. But I doubt very many of you are going to do that today. It would be very strange. And yet spiritually we've got people on milk. Pastor, tickle my ears a little bit. <laughs> Don't let me think, think too deep. <laughs> Tell me a story. Entertain me a little bit. Have you gotten to where you can take the strong meat yet? We need to. Don't judge, but do discriminate. That's the message. That's the takeaway. Will you say that with me? Don't judge, but do discriminate. Don't judge, but do discriminate. That's certainly what Jesus is saying. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you for the clear teaching in these verses, how we need it in our relationships with unbelievers especially. Every one of us in this room rubs shoulders with some unbeliever probably every day, but certainly every week. May we ask ourselves, are we like the uncondemning Savior or are we like the hypercritical Pharisees? Do we expect hogs to behave like hogs? Are we building bridges or barriers? Oh, Lord, help us to honestly face it. Are we disarming people or are we triggering wrath and opposition and revivals of sin? Would you search our hearts with these and similar questions? There may be someone or more under the sound of my voice either in this room or listening, watching by way of live stream, and they're not saved. Oh, please, Lord, help them to understand their need. And help the rest of us who claim to be burdened for lost souls. May we learn from Jesus' teaching here in verse 6 to be winsome so that we might, by all wise and worthy means, win some. Win some to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.